0: This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. In 2013, I was working as a program manager within the DoD contracting world. As we've talked about on previous episodes, especially the one about select your path last week, I was doing the best I could to follow my shoulds. I thought that if you're a SEAL and you retire in 2006 and it's the height of the GWAT and everything's going spicy in Iraq and a little bit in Afghanistan, then you go to a defense contractor and you become a contractor. And then when you become a contractor for a while, you become a program manager over other contractors. And eventually... You become an executive within the company that you were a program manager and a contractor for. I had a crisis, a spiritual emotional crisis, that put me in bed for a couple of days. I thought it was a, a, a physical malady. I thought I was sick and had a flu or something, but the the physical symptoms didn't didn't actually measure up to a full being sick. It turned out it was a crushing on my soul, and I. I lay there thinking I was dying. It felt like uh, the end of everything. And I didn't know at the time, but it came clear as I processed it, that I was on the wrong path. I had selected the wrong path based on the shoulds that I'd been told. If you're a SEAL, you become a contractor, either triple canopy or Blackwater, sling and lead, or you be an intel analyst, counterterrorism analyst in, in, uh, in DC. So I took the latter and, uh, and spent several years trying to be good at it. Trying to—I mean, I'm good at it. I can do it professionally. We'll talk about that today. But I didn't do it in my in my makeup. What I'm—I'm I'm not designed for that. I didn't love it. I loved being a seal. I was—I followed that path and and did that. But then after that, I didn't. The, the shoulds were not appropriate for me, which is where Impact Actual came out of. Right around the same time, we published Powerful Peace, a Navy SEAL's Lessons on Peace from a Lifetime at War, and. Began doing more coaching and building the courses that would become today's Unchained program. That was where I began to, to, to execute my mission, which is today's topic. It, was, it took a crisis of faith for me. It took a, 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 not, a, not a full-on mental breakdown, but really recognizing that I was off track. I was not doing the right thing for my life. And so we've gone through the 12 tasks, all 11 of the first 12 in the past 11 episodes. And today, we're, we're, we're coming from last week's Select Your Path to the final and most important step of Execute Your Mission. Executing your mission means basically you've done all the work, the introspection, understanding who you are, what, you, what matters. You've done your SWOT analysis, your OODA loops, and everything to get to the place where you have a clearest picture of yourself and it's time to execute. And I'm really glad, really, really glad that we can close out this introductory 12 episodes of the 12 Tasks with today's guests. Uh, a friend of mine, we've met through social. Like many of my teammates, SEAL teammates, friends of mine, in recent years, we met through social. We met through people doing symposiums, and, we, and, and Jason Gardner and I actually met at a Suits and Spooks hosted by our friend Jeff Carr. You really need to check out Suits and Spooks. You really need to check out Jeff Carr if you're interested in cyber terrorism, cybersecurity. Jeff is very active these days in watching over the uh, Russian. Malfeasance as they're doing the Ukrainian invasion, even as we're taping this. So back to the guest, back to execute your mission, Jason and I. Here's a fun little side effect, uh, side story. We we were supposed to be attending and doing a panel at some point, but actually were slipped into a role of replacing Stan McChrystal, who had an issue going on that week and couldn't show up for the event. So uh, we became Stan McChrystal for a day and continued the program, helped Jeff have a great suits and spooks event, and. And and moved on. But I was really glad to watch Jason from that point forward. As I mentioned, the SEAL Master Chief, retired combat uh, SEAL, 30 years of experience in the teams, now working with Jocko Willink and Echelon Front doing leadership consulting, uh, a guy you also need to follow up. And at at the end of this episode today, we'll talk about how to reach him and how to uh, get the goodness that comes from the leadership consulting from Echelon and Jason. But one of the most amazing things to me about this guy's path is that his execute your mission didn't stop at the team's ending, and it didn't stop at uh, going into another line of business that uses all that experience to help professionals. It's, it's uh, We'll talk about it, or I'll invite you to talk about it today, Jason, is the, is the homesteading, about getting into the responsibility, the, the mission of leading your family and and doing something that's completely off the grid, literally, as far as normal paths go, normal shoulds. The Rob becomes a SEAL, then he becomes a defense contractor, then he becomes a program manager, then he instead heads for the executive roles and realizes it's going to kill him. So, Jason, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's really great to have you on. We're going to unpack a lot of these ideas about executing your mission and, and really knowing what your mission is. That's what the whole concept of the 12 tasks is all about. It's like painting a room. When I paint a room in a house, 80 to 85% of the work has nothing to do with paint. It's clearing the deck. It's painting, taping the walls. It's scraping the old paint. It's moving the furniture and the plants out of the way. The work is done before the final step, this execute your mission. And a lot of folks have been following this story for a long time and understand all that work that goes into it. But now we're where the rubber meets the road. And Eric Bond, as always, welcome aboard, producer Eric Bond.
1: Hey, Rob. Thanks for... Thanks for allowing me to participate again. Every one of these occurrences is like a gift. So Jason, tremendous to spend some time with you and, and meet you. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, this is going to be some good stuff. We've already been talking off camera, off mic about some really interesting concepts that have to do with executing your mission. First of all, let me go back, Jason. We mentioned echelon front. I guess I'm guessing you and Jocko were in the teams together.
2: Yeah. I first met Jocko in 1993 when he was an enlisted guy and I was a team five, he was a team one, but at the time everybody deployed to Guam. And so we were there and Jocko and I just hit it off and then stayed in contact. I wound up working for him again in 2010, right before he retired And uh, our training detachment. I was running our land warfare block of training for the West Coast SEAL teams. Jocko was the, the officer in charge of training detachment. And then, then you know, his book came out in 2015, right when I promoted out of the tactical levels of leadership into executive levels of leadership, which is a horrible change because you're not out doing the job with the, the, the folks anymore. You're in an office. And I was not accustomed to that and and I hated it. But going through extreme ownership helped me actually start to think about leadership and then also find value in my new role as an executive leader in the SEAL teams where, you know, I was going to meetings and, and realizing that, Hey, I was the only guy in the meeting that remembered what it was like to be out there doing the job. And so I find a lot of value in being able to represent those folks and then also come back to the, to the guy still doing the job and say, Hey, here's the big picture. Here's why, we can't do this or buy you this boot, or here's why we're focused on this training, or here's why this mission that we're doing. Well, oh man, it's not sexy and it doesn't seem important. It's actually the most important mission that we're doing for, for our country and and helping to, 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 to get folks to understand that big picture. So that was good. That was my path. You know, you, you talked about growth. I retired in 2019 and and I've grown exponentially since I left the SEAL teams. And it's it's kind of like what you're talking about is like there are these constructs set up, right? And you get trapped in them. So you retire from the SEAL teams and you're like, okay, now I'm going to go be a contractor. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And when you're in the SEAL teams, you're in an echo chamber because essentially everybody has the same kooky political views. And when everybody has the same views, you just start to veer way off course. And then it's you can grow inside that, I'm just not strong enough person to grow inside of it. So it's once I was free of that construct, I started to experience a lot of personal growth. I started to shed a lot of those things that weren't me. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's all kinds of stuff that I'm doing, not because that's who I want to do as a loving, kind person. I'm doing it because I figure that's what society, my parents, people expect of me. The shoulds, yeah, and trying to identify those and and let them go, and it's a it's a process, right? I'm I'm not there. I've shed a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of stuff that I need to let go of, to where you know I'm really close. I think I'm pretty much at, but I I don't think I can tell you I'm ever at because that would be a lack of humility. What you're talking about with finding what your path is, truly what your your path is from your heart, not your path on on all these built-in expectations from, from other people. And it's not them. So I, I got to clarify that because people are like, oh, my parents did this to me. No, they didn't. They They had it done to them. And it's just what kind of happens unconsciously that people do to each other because everybody's playing the same game, trying to fit into the construct. And it's not like it's your parents or... The the police or anybody else, they're not waxing their mustaches saying, ha, 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 This is what we're gonna do to screw screw you over. It's just just we're all caught up in the same whirlwind.
0: An automatic transmission of belief systems that just kind of perpetuates, it goes on, goes on, goes on.
2: Yeah. And it's and and you have to really become enlightened to break that loop. You know? It's, an,
0: it's a conscious absolutely conscious and courageous choice to make that to make that break.
2: Yeah. I think so.
0: You know, we talk about destroying self-limiting beliefs and behaviors. That's literally our, our claim to fame.
2: Well, like what where have I come since I've I've left the SEAL teams? You know, I left the SEAL teams, I've become I've become very adamant about my sleep regimen. And so I guard my sleep like a pit bull. And this means that, you know, no caffeine afternoon. I, I quit drinking completely. Just because of the effects that alcohol has with your sleep. And, and my relationship with alcohol was that I would drink two or three beers every night. That's not bad. And I never I never got a DUI, I don't go to bars, I don't do anything else, but that second drink I would have every night completely wrecks my sleep architecture. And so getting disciplined about my sleep has allowed me to get off all the other medications I was taking. Being focused on improving my diet, improving. My exercise has helped me to avoid those, med- you know, get off medications. And then finally, it's really, I've been focusing in the last year, going down a path of working on my mind where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be disciplined about meditation. I'm, I'm doing breathing, Wim Hof's breathing, cold exposure, a lot of different things that are really good for your brain. And I am finding a sense of, peace that I don't know that I've ever experienced since I was a little kid. I used to just have this grinding aggravation that I suffered from all the time. This worried anticipation that I got to do something and get to the next place and do that and get to the next place and do that. And now, now I'm getting to a point, I think where I'm having much more success being present in the moment. I still have a lot of work to do, but that that's it. And then I'm also noticing that when I'm out in public, if I wear a warm smile on my face that I feel better. And when I see somebody else and they see my warm smile, they typically smile back and it's a it's unconscious, but when they do smile back, there's a warm euphoric feeling that I get that I enjoy that I think is a good thing. And I suspect that they're getting that same fee- feeling when I radiate out to that to them. So I want to be. This is my new path. I want to be a geyser. I want to be a fountain of positive energy going out there for other people because because it'll help, and I and I think that'll boomerang. So on days that I'm the days that I'm not a fountain and I have become a emotional vampire, that some of that positive energy is coming back to me that I've already radiated out to other people. And it and it helps me get out of those 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 sine waves, you know, the lows that that people. We're just going to go through it as people. So that's been a lot of my focus lately, and I like it. And I think it's working out well. You literally, you've been talking
0: about like ninety five percent of the impact concepts right there. You talked about your sleep architecture. That's a great phrase for it. I've never heard that those two together. But we have a concept called sleep, eat, and train, S E A T,
1: which mm-hmm.
0: is the basics of physical health, your foundation. It's the seat of your physical power, which is the seat of your mental, emotional, and spiritual, ethical power. All of those are affected by how fucking tired you are or how grumpy you are because you got a sore tooth or whatever you're not taking care of. Or if you're fat and out of shape and feeling bad about it, that goes to your emotions. That helps you make bad judgment calls on what to do about your 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 fitness going forward. It's
2: all connected. It, it, yeah, it. you know, I was, my wife and I were having a discussion about that the other day about how, when we have, you know, less than six hours sleep, typically I notice that my willpower goes down and then like, I usually wind up eating a bunch of crap that I wouldn't eat specifically sweets. I don't know if my body is worried about a lack of energy and it's looking for quick energy through sugar, who who knows, but it's, it's not good. I, you know, I don't, I don't like it. I, I failed to mention too that, I, that I've gotten strict about a fasting protocol, which has also helped my, my overall health a great deal. And the way I'm doing that is I am essentially doing 8 and 16 intermittent fasting for every day, which is, you know, it's not really giving you that many benefits. But on I quit eating Sunday night and then I don't eat again till Tuesday morning. So I knock out a 36-hour a fast every Monday uh, the reason I chose Mondays is because eating is a very social event for people. And I'm, I'm just not going to go over to someone's house for dinner and sit there and not eat because I'm, I'm, look at me, I'm fasting, you know? Right. So Mondays are a light day. Usually you're not doing anything with other people on Mondays. So that's, that's when I chose to do it, but that's been really, really helpful for my overall health and well being and, and all of it.
1: J- Jason, you should, you just mentioned something that I just started doing on Monday, is the 16 to 8 ratio fasting. And a lot of it is, it's all upstairs. Like it's not, you know, because you're when, you, when your stomach's grumbling, when you're normally hungry, you're not actually hungry. You're bored at that point in time. You're you're, you're exactly right. You're bored, which is really what it is. And I, I've enjoyed it just the four days being into it. And I, you said something a few minutes ago that I want to go back, which is, I guess, kind of took... Gave me pause for a minute. So being somebody that was in the SEAL teams for as long as you have, obviously, Rob, I'm the oddball here in the conversation that I wasn't in the SEAL teams. And I always look at at you guys from kind of a stronger mental, I hate to say mental toughness, because like mental toughness isn't like a thing. It's like a to me, it's like made up whatever grit. Like I can't define that. It's amazing to me that you're continuing to still, even though I would think from the outside that your level of mental resilience is higher than the average bear. That's something that you're still continuing to improve and to work on. And that's kind of made me think a little bit. It's like, wow, it's, I don't know. Is it, is it more so because you're out of the teams and it's just a different way of adjusting to life? Like talk through that a little bit, maybe.
2: Hey, so I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable and, fairly honest with you on my observations. Like I I went through the SEAL teams because I was insecure and I was looking to prove myself. And that's, that's basically the bottom line. And there are a lot of guys that are in that same boat where they're insecure and they're like, I need to prove myself. And here's how I'm going to prove myself now to that end that your mental tough, we very, very mentally tough to that. end but then not so mentally tough when it comes to like being brave enough or courageous enough to stand up against a peer group or something like that. So there's a lot of, you know, it's, everything is like the Rubik's cube and I'm holding up a Rubik's cube right now for, cause this is going to just be audible. but there's so many different facets to everything. And so the not quitting going through so our selection course is one facet of the me- mental toughness, And so I think I was a solid color on that, but I'm not solid on the other ones. And so at least I've been humble enough to realize that I've got room to improve or or right now I'd be trapped like a bunch of other folks and I would just be all angry and saying, oh, the world's, and then just blame, blame some politician for all of my problems while I sit around and grumble and don't try to fix anything. And, you know, drink a bunch of beer and just be basically task force frown, you know, and that takes humility to realize you've you've got other other places to grow. So so I was the the mental toughness for my aspect of being a SEAL. A lot of it, man, was just me trying to overcome insecurities, which I'm still trying to overcome. And. And just thinking that that you know making it through is going going help and it, and it does every time you 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 make a goal, it helps a little bit, but you're still kind of fighting that battle, and it's a sine wave just because somebody was a seal doesn't mean they're a good person. When I got my trident back in
0: ninety six yeah because i went I did ten years NSA first, so I was a half spook half seal turned thirty in buds
2: wow that's you, you
0: did kind of the reverse there yeah. I, I went to Intel. And then I went to the, well, the thing is, I joined the teams. I mean, I joined the Navy for the teams. I've talked about this on other episodes. Yeah. I, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I went to the three recruiters, Air Force, Army, and I'm sorry, Marines, Army, and Navy, and said, I had one criterion. I said, who's got the toughest commandos? That was my mm-hmm. goal. And much like you said, I, I've honestly acknowledged vulnerably that at least half of my motivation was to prove myself to myself. A, a fair half was also to improve myself for mm-hmm. not myself, for the others, for the world. It's as I understood it, that was the best way I could contribute in the world, get the strongest I can, make a difference and it worked. I mean, you and I have careers we've we've done some significant things that have made the world a little bit better. We've also made some screw ups and made some mistakes that have, that have uh, sine wave right positive negative. we've mm-hmm. done some wrong things and and led to some negative consequences. But I thought, hey, I can make myself the toughest here because I want to be the toughest commando to overcome the fears of not being tough enough, of insecurity. When I got, (laughs) I think I talked about this on a recent episode too, I got to the Navy recruiter at MEPS and they said, you got to take this test, this D-Lab, Defense Language Aptitude Battery. I said, okay, whatever. My dad was a Chinese linguist during Vietnam, so cool. He was in the army. So I said, I'll take this. And they, They said, oh, dude, you've scored higher than we've ever seen at this station in New York. We'll give you any language you want. This is 1985. I said, "Yeah." oh, well, I want to be a counter-Soviet guy because that's what James Bond is. I literally thought that if I went to NSA, learned Russian, learned order of battle, learned Russian culture and mindset, I would, I would be issued a Walther PPK. I kid you not. In 1985, I believe that would be a thing. I have an ankle holster with a Walther PPK because I'm working for NSA. So for those who don't know, <laughs> that's not true in any way. If you go to NSA, you're going to do is, is try to watch out for wall crawlers and, and, and people who are really, really weird walking around the sacred halls of NSA. And I'm one of them. I got to acknowledge it. That's my, my you know, odd. Eric, you said earlier, you're the oddball. Not so much. I can at least claim it for myself. I can't speak for Jason, but that, we, you know, we're, 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 we're complex packages, human beings, team guy or architect or, or, or Baker or shoemaker. The beauty is in the, the fabric, the unique, the design, all these unique designs, everybody, if everybody on earth learned who they were and then executed that mission, we'd have no wars. We'd have no poverty. We'd have no starvation. We'd have no disease. We'd be able to work on things because nobody would be a dick to everybody else trying to cut other people's heads off because they believe the wrong God in the big picture of impact. Actual we're doing is trying to help people become who they are supposed to be. They're designed to be and not, not follow the shoulds. The shoulds lead to negative consequences. Lead to mm-hmm. people being pissed off. You you mentioned uh, Jason the the platoon. Well, not the platoon only, but the teams in general. The the group think. That's a that's a group think when everybody has to have the same opinion, or you're not cool. And I've been attacked by SEALs in recent years for expressing my honest beliefs about this or that or the other. Uh, and we're no different from any other community. There are there is the potential for the group think for the what one buddy called the swarm. He said, "Don't even." Don't even, don't even speak about these opinions that are unpopular among our community because the swarm, it's like a high school popularity contest. All the guys will stack on in Twitter or something else to, to validate the group thing. It's not constructive. So when you, you broke away from the Navy, but with your retirement and you began opening up your ideas about what you are and who you are and shedding, as you talked about, the process is lifelong. If you're not changing, if you're not growing, you might as well be dead because everything in life changes as it grows. Uh, we, we, I grew older. I grew many changes physically. A plant grows differently. So we're just on that path of change. And one of the things you talked about evolving as a leader as you opened your, your aperture after retirement mm-hmm. is be, that whole interface thing, being able to be the guy that does represent to the guys, hey, here's the big picture. You can't see this yet because you're not at this place, but I've been put behind the veil, I can see why it's so important for us to be in this village, not shooting anybody. Our presence alone has a massive strategic effect. For example, you know, women's literacy <laughs> programs. Uh, Tina Dolan's a Navy friend of mine who worked with Pete Weichel, one of our bullfrogs back in the day. Bullfrog for everybody else is the senior SEAL in the Navy on active duty at any one time. Pete followed a very unusual path. When I went to his retirement luncheon, I said, what are you going to do? I figured he's going to Go off to Blackwater because who doesn't, right? And this was—I mm-hmm. forget—two thousand eight, two thousand whatever. And he said, "I'm going to go to New Hampshire and study music." And I said, "Oh, dude, that's cool. That is your own path. Select your path and execute your mission." But you've 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 evolved, and and every every phase of life is an evolution. I mean, you probably evolve on a daily basis with your kids, right? With Iris around the mm-hmm. house trying to learn the next thing, fixing the the yard, yeah, the schoolhouse, right? You talk about that a little bit, your your lifestyle now
2: outside of the echelon, outside of the professional.
0: What does that life look like? It's amazing.
2: So, when we do sniper training on the West Coast, and there's a real remote ranch that we conduct the training on twice a year, it's called the, the package is called Rural Sniper, and it's not, it's a, it is an advanced block of training for all the West Coast SEALs. And I was running the training or uh, the sniper program for the West Coast SEAL teams, the, the training program for from 2003 to 2005. And so I was coming up on that trip every trip. And that's where I met Iris. She was a Wrangler on this ranch that we contract to, to use for training. They don't run the training, they're just a venue. We just use the terrain around the ranch to, to run our own training and then they, you know, they feed us. And so I fell in love with her, you know, convinced her to marry me. And she's like, when she's coming down to San Diego, She's like, hey, I'm bringing my horses and I am not keeping my horses in a stables. We're going to live somewhere where I can look out the kitchen window and see the horses. So that pushed us out to East County, San Diego. Initially, when she first came down, we lived together in a a one-bedroom apartment. But then, you know, six months later, I deployed and she went back up and worked on the ranch, came back. And then we found an eight-acre place out in El Cajon to rent that we could have the horses at and start gardening and stuff like that and then later when the market collapsed in 20 2008 we were able to buy an 18 acre place a little further east where iris then started a a community supported agriculture so an organic farm and i was still in the seal teams and we started our family then we had our horses and she started this farm business and so i would i went to when i deployed to afghanistan is right when we bought the place i spent the whole deployment planning out this big garden and all the irrigation for it and built 37 raised beds. And these raised beds were like 30, 40 yards long. That was the foundation for, for the business came back and did that. That helped me work through all that outside that labor working with the earth and being in nature really helped me. Cause that was an intense deployment to Afghanistan. And, and I was really stru- I was struggling with a lot of issues you know, from just PTSD and drinking and and then also being addicted to Ambien, which took me a little bit to, to get off of that. What I found is, is that when I was out in nature, I didn't need to take a pill or drink a beer to feel at peace. There was this settling is like, this is, this is where I belong. And there wasn't this grinding anxiety that was in the background. So It was nice living out there, but it was still Southern California stuff, still expensive. It's still really crowded when you go to the stores. And so we would spend our Saturdays searching for places on where, when I retired, where we would go. And we wanted to go somewhere really, really rural. And Iris grew up that way. I mean, she grew up in an area where she didn't even have electricity until, I think she was like 14 or 15, so... If you want to talk about a low maintenance spouse, Iris is it because she is just really low maintenance, easygoing and and isn't really a consumer or just care about a lot of that stuff. It's just about being outside in nature is her thing. So we found this area um, actually and we wound up right next to that ranch where we we met and we purchased 40 acres of raw land that uh, we wanted to build on and in the search for a place to rent we discovered there was nothing to rent in the area so we wound up buying and luckily at the time the real estate low prices were really low is this this little three acre property that we live on now that's right next to our 40 acre property and on it was a one-room schoolhouse that was the schoolhouse for the community until 1966 and then the, a small cabin, which was actually the cabin that the teachers lived in. And so we live in the small cabin right now. And the one room schoolhouse was was just about to literally fall down. And we started putting money into it. The first thing we did was we replaced all the windows and doors with triple pane windows. And then we fixed up the kitchen and, and the little bathrooms in there. And so we've got a place to stay when when people come and our family comes and visits us because they can't, you know, we need to put them in a tent out in the yard. They can't stay in our, you know, our little one bedroom cabin that we're in. And then several of our neighbors went to school here until 66. And one of our neighbors actually had the original bell that went in the belfry that, that his father had bought at auction when they closed the schoolhouse. So I fixed that up. And then we just finished last fall getting the schoolhouse re-roofed and painted and And now we're almost through fixing up the inside and we started using it as an Airbnb. so a little bit of passive income. And it's uh, really become like a little destination spot for people to Airbnb. So that that's great. Um, it's It's wonderful having these different people come from the city that want to experience the the great outdoors. and we we are in the wilderness. I mean, there, we've got bears, we've got moose, we've got elk, we've got turkeys, we've got white-tailed deer, we've got mule deer, bobcats, ev- everything, everything, and that that means that when we walk out into the wilderness, we're not at the top of the food chain. And man, that is such a cool thing to be out in the pure wilderness, where you know there there are bears, there there are cougars, there are wolves. And I don't want to kill them. I just, I celebrate them. I'm glad they're there because they're a necessary part of, you know, this creation that we're lucky enough to be given stewardship over. And so I've been really, really getting into like permaculture and trying to do as much as I can without any kind of chemical input. But thinking things through, it's like, well, how can I design this pasture so that you don't have to add chemical fertilizers to it. And that's by, you know, like planting a real diverse pasture mix where there's grasses and there's things like alfalfa and white clover and sandfoin that are legumes that can fix nitrogen into the soil so that you don't need to use a chemical fertilizer. And And as scientists start to pay more and more attention to the way that the natural ecosystems are designed, they're finding that, you know, we can get things done without a bunch of chemical fertilizers or herbicides or anything like that when everything's in, in, in a, in a, in a, in in its correct balance. So just striving to do that. And then I find that, that my community is an amazingly diverse community. I mean, it is really, really, we've got the ranchers here that are, at the far end of the political spectrum to the right and then there's a bunch of hippies that live around here that are at the the other end of the political spectrum but because the way our community is small and everybody knows each other's first name and they know they they know their kids that we're all everyone loves each other and all that political stuff You can set it aside because you know they're a good person. You know, you're really only like maybe 20 degrees off with them. At the end of the day, you know they want the right thing for the community.
0: Yeah, we used to appreciate that as a a people in America. We used to say, I disagree with what you're saying, but I'll defend with my life your right to say it. Today, if you say anything.
2: Our forefathers, man, I'm glad you said that because this is why people are going like, oh, we're going to get broken. We are not going to get broken. America has gone through blips like this, like we're, we're in a hard point right now, and but we've experienced much worse situations, and we've always worked our way through them and come out stronger on the other side. And our forefathers purposely designed this country so that there was disagreement. Because if we were in if it was just the folks up in Boston living in a high dense urban area deciding thing we'd have gone off the rails a long time ago or if it was just the people in the Midwest in a, a very rural farming, we'd have gone off the rails a long time ago but because they made us a republic and gave us the the you know what what is what is it the uh how do we because it's not a natural vote. Help me out here because I'm, I'm we'll call it a Democratic Republic electoral, electoral college. college. Yeah. And because we have that, there's always going to be friction. Right. And in right now, the, the high urban areas, they, they, they have more population, but they can't overcome because of the electoral college. And that's why it's a good thing. They were smart enough to invent us a culture or a system that was very, very resilient and can stand most of these problems.
0: Yeah, that resilience is what you're describing on your farm. I mean, on your ranch, even I've been following you and watching the iterations you'll post about how you're in one place you were looking at a a ridgeline behind you and talking about the actual trees that are there and how you want to make sure you maintain them because they do this to the ecosystem, and that reaches out to the alfalfa you're describing next door on the plane or on the, on the field. Mm-hmm. The people of, of America, the people of the world have that same potential to have, you know, it's in the it's in the distinguishing one from the other that we have our power. We have that resilience because there's different perspectives. And when we have the respect and protect others' dignity to talk about things without, you know, civil discourse, that used to be a thing in America it will be again once we as you say pass through this rocky period right now we have a lot of extremism in the 60s we had a lot of extremism and you know hippies and conservatives were fighting each other you know then too 60 years ago and so we go through these waves or sine waves in a society but we we have the potential to to be stronger and better for it because the you know one man sharpens another like iron sharpens iron right the, 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 the it's the friction itself that makes the system better and and comes back to normal. When you're talking about the, the scientist's understanding now that the natural process of the fields is superior to any amount of herbicide we can introduce to the system, it reminds me of chasing medications, like Ritalin, for example, back in ADHD uh, early ADHD days. Here, take Ritalin. It's a magic pill. Well, magic pills of an, a stimulant create a loss of appetite. So here's a second pill to stimulate your appetite. Well, now the appetite's stimulated, but the body is, its although he's in, is intellectually stimulated, he's not energized as a body, so his caloric intake is not so required, but the food intake just increased. Now he's getting fat. Let's talk about a depressant or some other kind. You know, just one symptom after the other, as compared to a natural, functional, healthy balance.
2: There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Eventually, she had to keep
0: eating until she died. You just get stuck in that, right? I want to go back to the idea of BUDS. You and I are talking off camera about BUDS and tr- and Simon Sinek. Okay, so BUDS, for those, a lot of folks understand. BUDS is basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, SEAL school. Simon Sinek did a post, a video that talked about him working with SEALs. And he asked, I'll, I'll, I'll paint a verbal picture here in a couple of seconds. He asked uh, the SEALs, how do they pick the best SEALs or the, the SEAL team, six SEALs, the, the, the tip of the tip of the spear. And they said, well, we have this graph. We have a performance chart or performance line X and a a Y of trust. We found that the high performance, low trust guys are toxic leaders, toxic teammates. So we focus on having high trust and then performance can be improved. We can deal with that. You mentioned now something I hadn't heard about before, but that in Buds, we're actually trying to do a metric on character. Can you unpack that a little?
2: Yeah, so really... When you took a a hard look at Bug, the only metric that they're measuring is is physical, and there's not. So they they've been struggling for a long time to figure out. Well, what is a way that we can figure out what is who's going to be the best teammate? Because just because you're a really good physical spec, good specimen, your doesn't make you a good seal. And I think. They came up with a 360 peer eval where everybody evaluates each other. And they've been using that as a criteria to, to, to hunt people from training. Cause you know, I know that both of us have worked with guys that are, they're outstanding physical specimens and they're good, but they're just horrible to work around and they're toxic for the um, whole team. And that, that impacts the effectiveness of the team overall. Absolutely. It degrades it. It's a corrosion. So the 360 evals is something that they put in place, and you know, it. Luckily, naval special warfare, because we have this culture. One, one, why we've been so successful is we're always we're always debriefing what we did, right? You remember, you you, you could do a training run for immediate action drills, or you do a uh, a team exercise at a monster mass, which is like a big Friday physical training that we do, and at the end of it. We always do a debrief and then your ego is gone. Your rank comes off and everybody goes, what did we do wrong? And what we do good? What we do wrong? And how can we do that better? And so we're, we're in this loop. It's kind of like an OODA's OODA loop that we're constantly in. And naval, that's why Naval Special Warfare is so adaptable to being able to do it. And so we're constantly looking at how the SEAL teams are going to evolve their mission. You know, and we, we, we completely left the water for a long time. I know that you you were still in the SDVs, but the SEAL teams we pretty much left the water, and now they're getting back to it because the the wars in the desert aren't uh, aren't as critical. And so yep. now now you take take what's made naval special warfare great and apply it to you as a person. So you're constantly growing. You're constantly going through this cycle of of a death and rebirth, death and rebirth. Of like, who was I yesterday? How can I be better tomorrow? You know, I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about my, my parenting and my relationships with both my kids. How can I do it better? And how is it different? It's it's interacting with my daughter is completely different than interacting with, with my son. And at the end of the day, really, that's all that matters to me anymore, because thinking strategically that my, my family is what I'm going to have forever.
0: So... And that's what... Your impact is actually—that's how it's magnified. It's a force multiplier to make your kids healthy adults. Because now, just like in a platoon, the, to- the, the platoon boss does not shoot things. He looks for the place to get out of the shooting, or he looks for the, the how to cover the guys that are now buried, you know, in, in, in fire, in gunfire. So when you have that long view, you say, I, I'm much more effective by taking my finger off this trigger and having the other ten guys beyond triggers and direct them. I've just multiplied my ability by 10. If I tell them what to do, mm-hmm. do it with a platoon, do it with a squadron, do it and hire do it until you're sec deaf, you know, and you
1: get bigger and bigger reach. Good. Eric. I was going to say, Jason, when you guys were in Iraq, that was like really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time that seals were really in like house to house combat, correct? Like street, like street fighting.
2: since Vietnam. Yeah, there, there. so Somalia was kind of like we were doing, um, when Somalia was going on between 93 and 95, there were SEALs in Mogadishu doing some sniper operations, but it was nothing compared to like the urban fighting that went on in Iraq in the 2000s. And then again, in 2016, 17, clearing ISIL out of there.
1: So, so I guess where I was going with the with, with the question is that, so, you know, you talked about, you know, what did that, you know, what do we do well? What can we improve? How did that, that experience that, that you guys had in, in the early 2000s, how did, what lessons and debriefs did you take from that to help SEALs that are later on came down the line in, you know, 2017 with, you know, with ISIS and all that?
2: So it happens in real time because the enemy's always adjusting because the, the battlefield is the, the ultimate Dar- Darwinism test, right? As soon as someone changed tactics, then you need to realize that they've changed the tactics and adjusted to it. So every time we went out on a, on a mission, every time, we would have a debrief. And if there was stuff that came out of that debrief, we would immediately get on the email and contact folks back in San Diego that were running training or Virginia beach or wherever they're running the training saying, Hey, here's, what's changing in real time. So there's this, this flat communication that's happening in real time. Cause it has to. And then because of the way our training is run and it's run down at, I don't want to get too wonky here, but it's important because it's run down at the 06 level. We have the ability to change it really fast Whereas, if you bring training up to where you have a bunch of curriculum and it becomes clunky, it's difficult to change. And this is the problem for some of our conventional partners in, like, the Army. Their training, they can't, they're not as agile with training their training, tra- tra- changing their training as we are in the SEAL teams. And so, for instance, when I went to Afghanistan in 2009, we were doing a lot of remain over day stuff where that was kind of similar to what was going on in, 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 uh, in like Ramadi and stuff, where they were doing daytime presence patrols, or they were working on these combat outposts. And then we got away with that, and we would just work during a cycle of darkness. But we shifted back to that remain over day. But the terrain now was different in Afghanistan. And so, you know, as we started doing these operations, and as we're like, hey, we did this last night, and that we could have done it a lot better this way, I would be feeding that stuff straight back to um, the guys running training. So, for instance, like my biggest fear out there when I'm on the battlefield is actually when, when you're fighting 40 SEALs and 30 Afghan um, commandos and maybe an ODA, you've got now pushing a 100-man ground force. SEAL teams didn't do that before. We're in smaller units. Now my biggest fear is a stinking blue on blue. That, that is my biggest fear. And so we're doing everything we can to mitigate that. And that means like hanging VRC-17, which are big, bright orange pieces of fabric out windows towards other elements just so they knew, and then just act absolutely being paranoid about it because it's it's a real factor. And so, and and then at the same time, we're feeding this stuff back to the guys on, on the strand, like, hey, here's... Here's what we're doing because we're now we're fighting these huge forces. And here's things you need to think about as a leader. And uh, here's things you need to think about as a SEAL. And they adjusted them and adjusted all the times. So like if you look a guy in like 2005 fighting in Iraq, he typically had body armor with Molly and pouches all over it. And he had a pouch for his certs and he had a drop holster. And then he had on, on his other... Leg. He probably had another drop thing to carry extra magazines, and he looked like a dang ninja turtle, right? You go and look at us fighting in Afghanistan in 2009, and guys are slick. They're wearing their pistol on their belt or on their body armor because it sucks to do a long-offset patrol with something on your legs. A lot of guys, and this is debate, a lot of guys had just ditched the sidearm, and they weren't even carrying a sidearm. A lot of our AW gunners weren't carrying a sidearm because, I, and, and I wouldn't do that in an urban environment, but it, it there was an argument for it in, in Afghanistan that you might not need one. And so guys were more concerned with being as streamlined as possible and as light as possible. And and there's a constant evolution and I, I who knows where where they're at now. And hopefully it's getting better, but it's because of that process. And, and it's because of, and that is, is why NSW Naval Special Warfare is so successful because we have that built-in process where we're always, we're always picking apart what we're doing, like nothing sacred. We can pick apart where we're allowed to question everything and then fix it. And then we have a system set up where it's fixed really fast. And it goes back to our, our training.
0: Lifelong learning and a process of rapid turnaround for learning. So it's, it's, it's you know, a two-part thing. It's open to changing and correcting and taking the, humility, the ego out of it so you can get better at your work and then
2: doing it fast. I saw a meme somewhere, and it's probably a quote where it said, I'm okay with questions I can't answer. I'm not okay with questions I can't ask.
0: Yes. Love that. This is, I mean, you've talked about execute your mission across the whole spectrum today in the teams, why you went to the teams, in the homesteading. How you're being a parent and a, and a partner you know this is this is this is magic this is pure gold and you're also of course doing the same evolutionary rapid learning rapid communication of it with echelon with echelon front mm-hmm. how do the listeners how do they get you how do they reach you how do they get some of the goodness that's coming how do they can tap into you and what you and Jocko are doing with echelon
2: So you know, Echelon Front is a leadership consulting company, and all of your problems are leadership problems. That's it, period. Even if you're just leading yourself, any problem that you're having is a leadership problem, and so that's why you need to discuss it and think about it and work on it because you just can't you can't read that great book by Jocko Jocko Willink and Leif Bab and Extreme Ownership and go, oh, I'm good. It's a process. You got to think about it and work on it every day, and so. That's what we do at Echelon Front. We give folks a framework um, to think about leadership. And so they can go to echelonfront.com or I just post on like on my social, on Instagram, which is jason.n.gardner. I'm just posting, you know, whatever I'm into in my journey in life, whether it's me out in the fields or me talking to my kids about being bullied or just me smiling at you because I'm trying to be that ray of positive (laughs) energy. That's That's what I'm trying to do. Social media is a double-edged sword. You know, it's like fire. Fire is good when you need to cook food and stay warm, and it's not so good when your house is burning down. But it is an amazing – it it has amazing potential to spread positivity around the world. So long as you're disciplined on how you use it.
0: Like any tool.
2: It can be an amazing tool for growth and an amazing tool to meet other really, really cool people. Like basically how, how Rob and I, we, we communicate via Instagram most of the time. Yep. And we're always looking at each other's posts and stuff like that. So it's fantastic.
0: And open to learning. Always open to learning because we're never done. We can't be. This is the this is perfect capstone, perfect capstone for the 12 tasks. I couldn't ask for better, brother. This is amazing. Hey, well, I'm humbled that you asked me
2: to be a part of it.
0: So true honor bringing you here and no, no bullshit, no stroking and like, Oh, thank you for your service stuff, which is not, not a bad thing. I mean, thank you for everybody who says thank you for your service, but we know that the depth of the meaning of that is what the cost is, the sacrifice. It's, it's, it's true, true gold you're pouring into people's ears and minds here because of the hard fought le- nature of those lessons. I'm going to leave it there with, and I'm going to emphasize gardener. Jason.n.gardner with a D, right? Because people might not get the... Yeah,
2: G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Perfect, perfect.
0: That's how you find them on Insta. That's how you'll find them at echelonfront.com. And again, priceless stuff. Thank you so much, brother, for coming on.
2: Awesome, thank you. Eric,
0: as always, thank you for making this stuff so much better. It's texture, man. We're, we're bringing some really good
1: conversations to the people and, and, and I know folks are going to appreciate it. Yeah, just, you know, as always, I'm blessed, grateful to be a part of this and just to be a fly on the wall. And Jason, thank you so much. And just that last piece that, you know, I walked away with every, you know, every problem you have is a leadership problem, starting with how you lead yourself. And I wrote it down. I mean, what a, what a great nugget that was. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a better person today for sitting here. And and I, I truly thank you for that. Thanks, Eric. We will steal that with attribution.
0: have an awesome day guys this is fantastic and to the listener thank you so much for tuning in i know you got a lot out of this i mean we we may have to have a sequel because there's so much that just barely began to get scratched and thank you for being here with us through the 12 tasks of the high impact system you've heard them all go back and check out the ones you haven't and and listen pay attention take your own notes and become better from it next week we'll dive right back in with another episode and have a groovy day we'll see you soon Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.